Well, good morning, Redeemer Church. It's a delight to be with you all here today. As we approach God's Word, as we approach these, these heavy and weighty words from Romans chapter 3, let's go to the Lord in prayer for His Word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the gift that it is. We thank You for the, the joy that it is, the privilege that it is, the honor that it is that we can freely sit here in this room, here in the Middle East, and to receive the preaching of Your Word. And what a gift it is for me to be able to hold it out, to herald the truth this morning. Oh, Lord, let us not take that for granted. What a sweet advantage, what a sweet grace, what a sweet honor it is to be able to dive into your word today. Oh, Father, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us an open heart, Lord, for change and transformation that at the end of this gathering, when we exit these doors for fellowship, for lunch, for the rest of our day, Lord, would we leave not unchanged, Lord, would you do a work on our hearts, even now, O Father, through your word, through Romans chapter 3. We pray this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the year was 1837. Soon, two new children's stories would be published in Copenhagen, Denmark. Two children's tales published by author Hans Christian Andersen. The Little Mermaid, the story of a mermaid living under the sea in an underwater kingdom, willing to give up her life in the sea for a human soul. The second story, and the one pertinent to our sermon text today, was titled The Emperor's New Clothes. There are many different versions of the Emperor's New Clothes. There's a Spanish version. Uh, There is a German one, even an Indian version of the tale. It's been a popular tale for almost 200 years due to its humor and irony. You may know the story. I was reminded of it this week in the writings of R. Kent Hughes, retired pastor and author of numerous expositional commentaries, including one on Romans, where he shares this very story as an illustration for this passage. In the tale, there's a vain emperor. He cares deeply about his appearance. He he cares so much about his wardrobe. He cares about looking good. He's consumed about looking good, cared not for his kingdom, but for his closet. He had a coat, a jacket for every hour of the day. Kids, can you even imagine a jacket for every hour of the day? Well, this emperor was that consumed with his clothes. The obsession was well known, and so a couple of thieves came into the kingdom. They conjured up a plan, a way to steal from the emperor. Their plan? It was to ask the emperor to commission them to weave a most rare and costly garment. To make a robe invisible. Invisible to all except to those who were wise and pure in heart. The emperor was thrilled at the thought of this Garment. That way he could tell who in his kingdom were, were fully with him, who in his kingdom had a pure heart, who in his kingdom could he really trust. 
How could he discern the wise men from the fools? Well, the wise men would see the wardrobe. He commissions the garment. He pays a large sum of money. The con men get to work. Or so the emperor thought. The liars sat before empty looms, pretending to be weaving for hours on end. Whenever they received a costly fabric for the garment, they just stuffed it in their bags to steal. And they kept weaving nothing but air. The emperor was growing impatient. He sent one of his ministers to go check on the garment, but the minister saw nothing. He saw just air. Well, what could he say to the emperor? Well, if he said he didn't see anything, well, the emperor would think he was unwise, that he was stupid, that he instead goes to the emperor and says, oh, emperor, the colors of the garment are radiant. They're most beautiful, more than you could even imagine. Well, the men ask for more money, and so they receive it. Eventually, the emperor sends another one of his leaders to go, and he doesn't see anything either. Just, just air, just hands moving in the air. But he doesn't want to lose his job, so he goes back to the emperor and says, well, everything looks beautiful, emperor. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. It's unparalleled beauty. Well, now the whole town gets word, and the whole town is talking about this. The whole kingdom is talking about this wonderful, most beautiful garment, and the emperor is ready to see it himself. And so he goes in to, to see, as the final stitchings are taking place of this garment, he goes in with his officers, and while they're looking at nothing, they say to the emperor, do you see your majesty? How beautiful, how radiant, how glorious is your garment, as they pointed to the empty looms. Well, the emperor thought to himself, what is this? What is this? I don't see anything. Of course, that's what he was thinking. He says, am I fit to be the emperor, he thinks to himself. What will happen to me? And so instead he says, oh, wow. Wow, this is beautiful. This garment is incredible. It has my highest approval. Everyone seeing what they didn't see. Well, finally the day comes, and the day comes for the emperor to flaunt his new clothes in a parade in his kingdom for all to see. And so the men who have weaved this invisible garment, they take off the emperor's clothes, and they, they put on this invisible garment on the emperor. Pretty soon leaving the town as fast as they could with their money and with their fancy fabrics, leaving the emperor to go parade around town. And the emperor did, without any clothes. Now here's the strangest thing. As the emperor walked around, as the emperor paraded around, everyone, the whole population, they joined in in praising this new garment. Everybody just clapping and celebrating the emperor's new clothes. Until finally all was quiet and a little child spoke up and said, wait a minute, the emperor has no clothes. And in that moment, everyone knew the truth about the emperor, including the emperor himself. R. Kent Hughes says of this moment, one innocent but honest remark by a small child who didn't know enough to keep his mouth shut stripped away the hypocritical pretense of an entire nation. 
The emperor's new clothes is such a great story that we use the term proverbially to describe a common tendency that we remain quiet while a fallacy is being promoted to which everyone is subscribing because we do not want to be thought of as fools. Well, Hughes goes on to say that as we approach the third chapter of the letter to the Romans, we must keep this in mind as Paul confronts the condition of the Jews. They had imagined themselves to be clothed with a robe of righteousness that was actually non-existent. They thought they were dressed in robes of righteousness, but they were duped by the con man of a misleading religious confidence. Paul, like the little boy, stripped away their layers of delusion. They believed because they had the law, they had the traditions, they had connection with, with God, that they were safe, that they were a guide to the blind, a teacher to the foolish. But Paul undresses them, just as he's done throughout this letter, undressing the sin of those who sinned willfully, chapter 1, and now those who thought they were ever so great, here in chapter 2 and now in chapter 3, proving one's culture, one's background, one's religious activities, one's traditions, one's rituals, one's laws, one's signs, gave no guarantee of eternal life, religious affiliation, nor anything else can save. In our next passage, we see that none are righteous, not even one. Remember what I said last week in, as part of the sermon, that the heart of your problem is a problem with your heart. The heart of your problem is a problem with your heart. That's the issue. It's not having the law. It's your heart condition before the law. It's not circumcision of the flesh, but of the heart. Righteousness is a matter of the heart. In our passage today, Paul continues to use the literary device we've talked about called diatribe. A teacher setting up a dialogue with a critic or with a student by asking questions. Scholar C.K. Barrett says it's easier to follow Paul's argument if you can imagine the apostle face-to-face -face with a heckler. One who makes interjections, one who then receives strong replies from the apostle himself. Another scholar writes, it might not be far from the mark to imagine that Paul is actually arguing with himself. Paul, the Christian convert, to Paul, the unconverted Pharisee. Paul, to Saul. Paul, the Christian, versus Paul, the Pharisee. Chapter 1 showed us the condemnation of the Gentile. Chapter 2 ended with an argument that the Jews didn't obey the law sufficiently to be saved. Well, here in chapter 3, we see the Jews, the Gentiles, all are under the same wrath of God. Several questions then arose if that's true, four of which we get in our eight verses today. And that'll serve as our outline if you're taking notes. Four different types of questions, four questions focused on different things. I'll just give one at a time. So we'll start with number one, a question of God's promises. We see that in verses one and two, a question of God's Promises. Now, the first question we'd expect from the Jew after hearing the condemnation of chapter 2 would be exactly what we get. I've looked at a couple different versions, and so it may not all match up to the, to the ESV today. But look at verse 1. 
What advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? If Jews and Gentiles were both under God's wrath, well then why does it matter being a Jew? What's what's the point? Do the covenants in the Old Testament have any importance? What about Israel's special election as the people of God? What about God's saving promises to Israel? God chose Israel out of all the other nations of the world. God made a covenant with them. Remember the Abrahamic covenant that through Abraham, land would come, seed would come, blessing would come. We see that Genesis 12, 15, 18, and onward. They were given the sign of circumcision, the sign and this seal. They were marked off apart from the Gentiles as the very people of God. But what good was all that if they were one step away from judgment just like the rest of the Gentiles were? Was Paul's teaching undermining God's promises to Israel? As you read this text, you can almost feel the temperature rising higher and higher and higher. The blood boiling among the Jewish readers. This was not an exciting message for them. And Paul's going to answer that question more fully beginning in Romans chapter 9. But yes, he says, yes, God will shower mercy on his people, but no one is automatically exempt from judgment. No one. Back when I was in, in university and then in theological seminary, you could take a test before the beginning of a course to see if you knew enough of the material to skip the course, to get credit for the course. It was called clepping out of the course. You take a clep test, and if you scored high enough, it showed that you had proficiency, maybe in Greek. You've already studied Greek, and you could take this test, and if you knew enough Greek, you could clep out of the test. You could skip the, the course and take another course of your choice. Paul is saying here, no one can clep out of God's judgment because of their good works. Yes, God has chosen Israel. Yes, there will be a remnant saved, but Israel is still guilty for her sin. Promises made by God will indeed be promises kept by God, but not necessarily in the way they thought they'd be. Jews weren't clept out of sin and judgment simply because they were God's chosen nation. All are saved, just like I said last week, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the glory of God alone. Period. That's it. Full stop. No other way to be saved. So then the question remains, is there any advantage for the Jew? You know, they read chapter 1, they they hear chapter 2, and they come up to chapter 3. Wouldn't that be the question on their minds? Well, what's the advantage then? What's the advantage for the Jew? Is there any benefit, or did God trick them in some way? Now, if you're as old as me, and I'm getting pretty old, you could tell by my white beard, if you're my age, maybe you remember playing around with children on the playground and doing various jokes with each other. You say a joke, sometimes you'd say a joke to someone and then you'd say the word psych. Anybody remember the word psych? Right, you might say something and then use that word. You're terrible at playing football, you're no good. Psych. 
Or maybe you'd say something more, more believable and you would try to play a little practical joke. Hey, so-and-so, the, our, our teacher needs to see you. You're in big, big trouble. And then you'd let it sit for a few seconds. And then you'd say, psych, I got you. We could do this all day with each other. The psych part meant that you were joking. You psyched them out. You tricked them. Is that what God did here? Is that what God does with the Jews, with Israel? Did God say, Israel, here are some grand promises through Adam, through Abraham, through David? Psych. I didn't really mean those promises, just joking. Oh, friends, is that the kind of God that we have? Is that the kind of God that we worship? Had he failed Israel? Had he even lied to Israel? There's the question of God's promises. Would he remain true to God's promises? And the answer is yes, 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 a million times yes. God is always faithful to keep his promises. Promises kept by God, always promises made by God, are always promises kept by God perfectly. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. It's really a a surprising answer we get here in some sense. The Jews, they were surprised at chapter 2. Wait a minute. The Gentiles, yeah, they're pretty bad. But chapter 2, wait a minute. What We're condemned also. But now we're a little surprised because after reading the text, studying it the last two weeks here on Sundays, what might we expect Paul to write here in the beginning of chapter 3? What advantage has the Jew? Well, none at all. Because remember, Jews and Gentiles, both alike, are sinners. They're under the wrath of God. They need the saving grace of Jesus. But that's not at all what Paul says, is it? What advantage has the Jew? Verse 2. Much in every way, first of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the oracles or the very words of God. There's an advantage, huge advantage. Chapter 9, we'll elaborate. Here's the biggest one. The Jews were given and entrusted and had a stewardship over the very words of God. Paul probably has in mind here both what God has said in the Bible, but also the promises made first to Abraham back in the beginning of Genesis. It's a blessing to know God's promises. While the Jews weren't clept out of God's judgment, it didn't mean that there was no value in what he had given them. There is value, but of a different kind, a massive value. I mean, do you see the strength of the words here? Much in every way. That's a huge advantage, says Paul. As one scholar notes, for us to say that Israel wasn't chosen and blessed in the Old Testament is to accuse the Old Testament of falsehood or to accuse God of failure to carry out his plans. No, the Jews had the written self-revelation of God. The law, the Bible. This is a massive advantage. They had the words and truths of God right before them. Their children grew up in this environment. How could we apply this today? Well, we too have the word of God. Everyone sitting in this room 
right now, in this very moment of time, as I preach, is being taught the Word of God. This is a privilege and an advantage. In God's Word, we have a description of who God is, that God is holy, that God is beautiful, that God is loving, that God is sovereign, He is in control, that God holds the world in His hands, that God knows you, that God is all-knowing, all-powerful. In God's Word, we have a description of who man is, that we are sinners in need of salvation, in need of a Savior, but in God's Word, we're also told that there is a Savior, that there is a Savior who has come. And his name is Jesus. God in the flesh actually left heaven, came to earth. God's word tells us that Jesus lived the perfect life and died on the cross to save sinners like me and like you. In God's word, we're told of eyewitness accounts that on the third day after Jesus was put into a grave, that on that third day, Jesus rose from the dead triumphantly, conquering death and judgment and all of our sin. You're a believer in Jesus. In God's word, we're told how to live. We're told how to love. We're told how to forgive. We're told how to serve one another, care for one another, bear one another's burdens. In God's word, we're told that there's a coming day when Jesus, our Savior, will come back. And he will come back and he will make all wrong things right. That there'll be no sickness, no tears, no sin, no temptation, no death. And we will be with them. We have God's word. And we see that lived out in different ways. Not, o- not only do we see the truth in Scripture themselves as we read the Bible, as we teach the Bible, as we preach the Bible, but we might say we have the advantage of, of seeing the truth's uh, witnessed before our very own eyes in baptism yesterday we had several men baptized from central asia and it was a joy to hear their testimonies and to watch this symbol of their death before christ as they went under the water and then the symbol of their being alive in jesus through his resurrection as they came out of the water we have the advantages of church membership it's of us walking alongside of each other helping each other spurring each other on to faith and good works We have the advantage of taking communion together, this visible picture, the bread and the cup of Jesus' life and Jesus' death poured out on our behalf. This is an advantage. We have the advantage of attending a worship gathering just like this in peace. What a privilege here in the Middle East that we can gather. Crown Plaza Hotel, Sheikh Zayed Road, center of the city to study the very oracles, the very word of God. What about the advantage of gathering in our community groups? What about the advantage of being raised in a Christian home? Now, children, tweens, youth, I don't know if you may always think this, but being raised by Christian parents is an advantage. It is a privilege and it is a gift. You may think your parents are too strict at times. But you are blessed. This is an advantage. Many of us didn't have that blessing. Many of us weren't raised in Christian homes. But you are. And so when devotional times come, when Bible reading times come, when family devotions come, that is a blessing and an advantage to you. Listen. Learn. Grow. But none of these things automatically save us. 
Just like for the Jew, there's an advantage, but you have to come to faith yourself. Now, here's a statement that I want us to think about this morning. You can be close to God, but not be close to God. You can be close to God, but not be close to God. Let me elaborate. You can be close to God, being here on Sundays, attending baptisms even last night, being a member of the church, joining and participating in a community group, being a part of the youth group on Friday nights, being a part of the tweens ministry on Sunday mornings. You can be close to God, close to the things of God, close to the people of God, but not be close to God. You can be close to the people of God, you can be close to the things of God, all the while your heart is far from him. You can be close to God bodily. Your heart may be far, far away. Friend, you can't rest on rituals. You can't rest on religion. You can't rely on family background. God's covenant here in Romans didn't exempt anyone from judgment. No one. But it was a privilege. The Jews were given the very truths of God. John Stott says the Jews were the custodians of God's special revelation. An immense privilege given to no other nation. And it's a privilege we all have today. It's why ever since COVID, we've been ending our services, reminding us as a church to go and make disciples of all nations. Well, if you're here this morning, I've already met a couple of first-time visitors. We're so glad you're here. We pray that you would continue to come, to continue to be here with us. But allow me to, to plead with you for a moment. Keep coming on Sundays, even if you don't feel like it. Even if you're tired from the week, even if you want to sleep in, even if there's other things you could be doing, please, please come. I urge you to come because what we're going to do every single Sunday when we gather is we're always going to sing the words of God. We're going to read the words of God. We're going to pray through the words of God, and we're going to preach the very word of God. And hearing it is an advantage. It's a blessing. You can't save yourself, but you can do whatever you can to be close to God. Join or continue on in a community group. We have community groups, small group Bible studies, meeting throughout Dubai, Sharjah, and Ajman. Men and women gathering together throughout the week to study the Bible together, to read, to learn, to be in community with others. Also want to encourage you, read good books. Read the Bible. Also read good books. We have many out there. Kanta Merchandani, I think our longest serving deacon or deaconess. She leads our bookstall. We put good books on that bookstall. Books that will be edifying and enriching to you. Read a book. Read a book with somebody. Read and learn. Children, tweens, youth. Maybe you feel like your parents are dragging you to the church service or dragging you to this ministry or that ministry. Kids, let me say this. You tweens, let me just say this to you. I know you're scattered around, so I'm looking all around, seeing some of you, maybe some of you I, I can't see right now from my vantage point, but let me say this to you now. There are many around the world that have no access to God's word. You have access to the very words of God. Go to tweens on Sunday mornings. Ask your parents to take you early. Friday night, I know there's lots of activities pulling for our attention on Friday nights. Ask your parents 
to get you or to help get you to youth group. Kids, it's never too early to come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What advantage has the Jew? Much. Much, says Paul. They were entrusted with the very oracles of God, the very word of God. Today, we as a church are custodians of God's truth. We have God's word. We all get together here. Though in the center of the Middle East, we have access to the Bible and to biblical teaching. Let's not waste it. Let's not waste it. Well, I spent much more time on point number one than I will on these other three points if you're keeping track of time. But it is time to move on to number two, so let's do so. Number two, a second question. It's a question of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness, verses three and four. Verse three, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? If God made promises but Israel isn't faithful, well, does that mean God isn't faithful? What does Paul mean here about unfaithfulness? Well, scholar Tom Schreiner suggests two things. One, that Israel was unfaithful to both the law by, number one, transgressing it, and number two, by uh, being unfaithful by failure to believe in Jesus. They rejected God's word and the gospel, to put it in summary fashion. Well, then what about God's faithfulness? What then? Does the failure of the Israelites prevent God from following through on his plans? Verse 4, well, not at all. Not at all. Let God be true, every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you're judged. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, has written, We're promise breakers, but God is a promise keeper. God will remain faithful even in Israel's failure. And Paul writes this as strongly as he can. Not at all. In Greek, may it never be. Never, ever, ever, ever. No. Paul can't say it any stronger. It's, it's more violent language in the Greek than it is in English. If you want to get close, not on your life, says Paul. Not at all. Not in a thousand years would God break his covenant. We see that in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. God will be faithful. Tom Schreiner reminds us that God will be particularly faithful to the pledge that the Jews would experience some type of eschatological salvation. Now, God is faithful. Humans are liars. Humans are deceivers. Humans are sinners. But there's a sharp contrast there. God will remain faithful regardless. Verse 4 includes a quote from Psalm 51. Many of you will know this psalm, the great psalm of repentance of King David after his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, ultimately a sin against God. David wrote it. He was forgiven of adultery. He was forgiven of murder. He looks up to God. He says, God, you're right. God, you're right to be justified. You are justified. He understood that if God killed him, God would be right, that God would be justified if he killed David. The whole verse reads from David in Psalm 51, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight in order that you might be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. Of course, David's sin was against Bathsheba. David's sin was against Uriah. David's sin was against the whole kingdom. But ultimately, who's 
was David's sin against? Well, David's sin was against the God of the universe, the holy God of the universe. And David understood his sin. He, he, he wasn't minimizing it because in true repentance, there's no rationalization. There's no attempt to minimize guilt. There's no attempt at self-justification. Well, friends, that's our human tendency. Even when we confess our sins, it's to hold something back. It's to hold the worst part of it back. But the judge of the secrets knows, even when we confess our sins, we're tempted to hold back maybe some of the gravity of it, but not so with David. David had to be confronted, but eventually he got it. And Paul's answering the charge regarding God's faithfulness and giving a hearty amen. God will be faithful, period. Well, third, we have a question of God's justice. Number three, a question of God's justice. We see this in verse five. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Now, here's the question from the Jews. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. If our unrighteousness, if our sin brings about God's righteousness more clearly, how can we be in trouble for it? If we're making God look good by our sin, well, how can you judge us? You'd be an unjust judge. They could also be thinking if you made these moral demands uh, of us, knowing that we'd fail, that's not fair. If we could never keep the law in the first place, how could you judge us for not keeping the law? There was a common thinking that because of God's Covenant promises the Jews were immune from judgment. Well, of course, we also have to remember some Jews didn't think they were corrupt in the first place. They look at Romans chapter 1 and they're like, ha, look at the Gentiles, look at those evil people, look at just the, the wicked tax collectors, the wicked sinners. I'm nothing like them. I'm nothing like those people over there. They're the really bad ones. Some Jews actually felt that they had the ability to obey the law. But God says nobody has that ability. First there in chapter 1, then in chapter 2, and now in chapter 3. Remember, we're in this section called condemnation in the book of Romans. We started with an introduction and then the condemnation we saw start there in chapter 1 all the way on to Romans chapter 3 verse 20. All these verses showing us that Jew, Gentile, the whole world is condemned before God. Next passage says, none are righteous, not even one. Well, here's another problem. Not only were the Jews not immune to sin, in a sense they were held to a higher or a stricter standard. The word of God was a double-edged sword, a blessing, but it also brought with it judgment. There's no ignorance. Just like us today, we're sitting in this room, we're studying God's word. There's no way to be ignorant of the truth. Therefore, the Jews, no one could plead that they didn't know or have access to the word of God. God's word promises blessing for obedience, but curses for disobedience. And Paul tacks on a little parenthesis there at the end of the verse. By the way, I'm using a human argument. He's saying, this is a bunch of nonsense. I'm embarrassed even in bringing this up with you. Because if the Jew is saying God can't judge them, what is he ultimately saying? Well, look at verse 6. Is God unjust in bringing his wrath on the Jew? Well, certainly not. If that were so, well, then how could God judge the world? If God can't judge the Jew, God can't judge the Gentile, 
How could God judge the world? When the Jew argues that God can't judge them, he's really denying that God can't judge anyone, including the heathen of chapter 1. If God can't judge the Jew, he'd be wrong. Well, Paul says, who else can't he judge? Anyone. The Jew's ultimate hope is that someday justice will come to the wicked Gentile world. But Paul says, if it's wrong for God to be glorified in your justice, then he can't be glorified in judging anybody. If these Jews arguing were right that their sin brings glory to God, then there would be no judgment at all. For how then could he judge the Gentiles? Because the very same problem would be true. The question about God's justice is an argument that holds no water. Well, finally, a fourth and final question. Number four, a question of God's glory. We see that in verses 7 and 8. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. That's how he closes our passage. We have a question of God's glory. Paul continues his previous argument from the two verses prior. This is really part B of that same argument. It's been said that in verse 7, Paul is playing the role of devil's advocate. If it's wrong for God to be glorified in judging the Jew, it's also wrong for God to be glorified in judging the Gentile. If sin enhances God's glory, if it displays his righteousness, rather than me being judged, shouldn't God write me a thank you note? Thank you for glorifying me. Thank you for all your sin. It's made me look good. We'd be saying that we're serving God by our sin. So let's sin like crazy. Let's sin like crazy so God gets glory like crazy. If being bad makes God look good, let's be bad. How can God condemn us for glorifying him? That's the argument. This is the cry of the antinomian. It's a big word. Do you know that word? Antinomianism. It's a big word. It's an important word. It's one who believes they can sin as much as they want since they'll be forgiven of everything. If evil behavior has good consequences, let's increase the evil to do more good. The evil justifies the means. That's the argument. Well, Charles Hodge put it well. According to this reasoning, says Paul, the worse we are, the better. For the more wicked we are, the more conspicuous will be the mercy of God in our pardon. Well, John Stott says, instead of this reasoning, no good results can justify the encouragement of evil. Evil never promotes the glory of God. Paul was accused of antinomianism, despising the law that now this new Saul turned Paul was intoxicated by the grace of God, that he threw the law away. That he was all grace all the time and that it meant a license. It meant that his message was a license to the Gentiles and to all to sin and to sin all that they wanted because ultimately because of Jesus' thing on the cross, they would be forgiven. But that makes no sense. That's not what Paul was teaching. Paul understood, as he shows in his writings in Romans and in other, other places, the destructive nature of sin. Sin is never a good thing. Sin affects you and sin affects everyone around you. You may think your sin is private, but your sin affects you and it affects all those around you. In your home, 
family, friendships, church, workplace, neighborhood. Your sin has wide-ranging effects. Now, this is a twisted logic. This is bizarre thinking. My parents and sister's pastor, Pastor Chuck Swindoll, uh, puts it this way. He says, to say that sin brings God more glory is no better logic than saying, well, fires and disasters around the world give rescuers an opportunity to display their skills and bravery. So why not set more fires? Why not set more disasters at, at, at hand? And so the, the fire men and women and others can go uh, save and get glory for what they're doing. Well, that's ludicrous. What about the victims? What about those who suffer as a result of those fires or tragedies? There are no victimless sins. Every sin harms you and those around you. Whether directly or indirectly, your sin hurts. Your sin causes human suffering. It grieves God. Some Jews were saying, Paul just did away with the law. He just threw it away. That Paul even encouraged sin so good might result. Now, it's not that these Jews necessarily were antinomians themselves, verse 8, but they were slandering about Paul. They were spreading this evil message about Paul. But there's a problem with this because it's a lie. It's a lie. What would, we, what would you know? The, the slander of the Pharisees, Sadducees, the religious leaders, it was a lie. Paul never denied the law. These arguing weren't trying to necessarily get a license to sin themselves. They were trying to discredit the Apostle Paul's ministry. They didn't understand the relationship between the law and the gospel. They missed Jesus. They thought the gospel gave license to sin, or at least accused Paul of teaching that. Paul's not saying, as R.C. Sproul mockingly wrote in a poem, free from the law, oh blessed condition, we can sin all we want and still have remission. No, friends, there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian who can just go out and do whatever he or she wants to do, because ultimately... They think they have some fire insurance that they will be relieved of hell and given heaven at the end of times because of Jesus, and now they're free. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. You don't get to make Jesus your, your Savior but not your Lord. You don't get to separate those two things. You don't get to sin all you want. To follow Christ means to follow Christ. And when, when we're truly saved, we want to follow Christ. We want to follow his laws. We want to love one another well. We want to bear each other's burdens. We want to lift each other up in hard times. We want to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now we want to do good things, but not to be saved. Not to try to earn something from God. Not to look good on the outside. But because our hearts have been changed. And so we forgive our enemies, we grow in holiness, we fight sin. Paul says, the thought that I would reject the law or give license to sin, that's ridiculous. The end of verse 8, those who think the more sin the better, more sin the glory, he says their condemnation is just. 
Their very words condemned themselves. It's a twisted thinking. They thought Paul taught a license to sin, but what he taught was that we as sinners could never save ourselves. We can only be saved by the grace of God. And once we're saved by the grace of God, we want to follow Christ to the very end by serving him wholeheartedly. That's the message that Paul taught here in Romans 3 and throughout the Bible. Well, in closing, let me just take us back in time about 40 minutes or so to the tale of the emperor's new clothes. Originally, Anderson's manuscript with the, ended with the subjects, with his loyal subjects admiring the invisible clothes. That's how the story ended. The story was actually at the printers there in Copenhagen getting ready to be printed, and Anderson actually rushed and stopped the printing and changed the end of the story. He thought it would be more satirical and have more irony. And so he changed the end of the story from his subject's admiration to that child's cry. I read the story again this week, and it ends with the child pointing out that the emperor had no clothes. And the story ends. Now, why Anderson made the change to the story, nobody really knows. It's a couple of theories. One is that as he grew up, he had wanted to be admitted to this club for uh, distinguished adults. Finally, when he was of age and he was old enough to join the club, he gets in. But what he found in that club, the one he always wanted to be a part of, is he found snobbery. He found hypocrisy. Another theory was as a child, he once went with his mother to, to see King Frederick VI. And when the king finally appeared, Anderson actually cried out loudly in the midst of the crowd, Oh, he's nothing more than a human being. His mom was embarrassed and hurried up to keep young Hans's mouth shut and to keep him quiet. Now, we don't know for sure. But at the very least, Anderson's aim seems to be to make the story more satirical. The child gets it. The child's willing to speak up what no one else is willing to do. The child's willing not just to follow suit of everyone else. Everyone else is just going along with it. They're too afraid to say what's obvious. Only the little kid speaks up, but you see, no matter what everyone thinks, the emperor isn't wearing anything. Well, friends, the Jews, they thought they were clothed with robes of righteousness. They trusted in the law. They thought that they could earn the admiration of others for their works. Well, the phrase emperor's new clothes has become a standard metaphor for hypocrisy, collective denial, and pride. And so I leave with you today, my friends, that we all need a Savior. We all need a Savior. None of us are dressed in clothes of righteousness on our own. On our own, we wear the emperor's new clothes, and we need Jesus to give us his robe of righteousness. And if you believe in him for salvation, if you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus to save you, that's what he does. See, Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead, so we don't have to pretend. Jesus took upon himself our sins so we don't try to have to fake it to make it. Jesus traded places with us so that he would die instead of us so we could have everlasting life. Friend, if you don't yet follow Jesus, turn to him today. Let today be the day of salvation. 
Only he can clothe you with it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we love you. We thank you for saving us by grace through faith in Christ. We thank you that Christ lived the perfect life we could not live. We thank you that Christ perfectly fulfilled the law. We thank you for not leaving us for dead. We thank you for bringing us to eternal life. We thank you that we don't have to anxiously try to clothe ourselves with a robe of righteousness to impress you or to try to save ourselves, but that you have made a way that now we, we do good works in response to the ultimate work of salvation that you've given us. Oh, Father, help us as a church to love one another, to bear each other's burdens, to care for each other, to help the sick, to give to the poor, to, to love those who need love, to care for the depressed, to lean on one another in difficult times. Oh, Father, would we be a church marked by love because we were first loved by you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.